when I started out, MSN was a chat room that groomed a lot of children online and adults and sexual offenders who were adults or young people would groom younger people. It's the most common form or the first form of catfishing that we had. So I would be the covert that would be online saying I was a 14-year-old girl. Within two minutes, I would have 20 to 30 men asking me as a 14-year-old what I look like with my clothes off and did I touch myself. And I don't think it's got better. I think it's got worse. People have got smarter in ways that they're going to groom and meet up with people. Welcome to the Medusa's Mike podcast, where we come together to stop sexual violence. My name is Lucretia Rackfield, and I'm so very honoured to have your company today. Medusa was a victim survivor of sexual assault who was blamed, punished, and had her voice taken away. Too many people can still relate to her story, and we want to change that. It's time for Medusa to take back the mic. In this podcast, we'll share the personal stories of victim survivors, hear from experts in sexual violence prevention and response, and talk to the quiet leaders who are creating real change. Sometimes the content may be confronting, and I urge you to seek support when you need it. But overall, I hope each episode helps you to feel more informed and empowered to take action to stop sexual violence in your community. Now, Let's hear from today's guest. I'm very excited to introduce you all today to an amazing, powerful and incredible woman by the name of Erin Cash, who I've known for quite some time. Now, Erin, please correct me if I get this wrong, but my list of your achievements reads as follows. 12 years as a detective investigating sexual abuse and uh, child sexual assault for the police service in Queensland. 13 years as an advocate and social commentator against family and domestic violence and sexual violence, a former MMA fighter, a gym owner, and also, most recently, the inaugural collaborator for the SSV Collab. Have I missed anything? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds way better when the words come out than the words. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here today. <laughs> it is lovely to see your face. Yeah. Yes, and hear, and hear our voices. Yeah. Now, I really wanted to get you on the podcast today because, yes, as I mentioned, you are the inaugural collaborator for the SSV Collab, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that collaboration is later in the show. But I really would like to go back to the beginning for you and help people to get a feel for how you started What led you to go into the police service in the first place? Oh, my goodness. That is such a good question. (laughs) People rarely ask that. It's not when I was little, I wanted to be a cartoonist, a graphic designer, a ballerina, a singer, a detective. And um, when I went to university on a whim, I did business public administration because I wanted to be a politician. But when I finished university, I was 19 years old. So I walked into a unemployment environment of 8.3%, the highest since the depression. Mm. So people, even though I got, did really well in my public admin exams, people just laughed at me. I went for a interview with 
insert male politician's name right here. And he said, darling, you need to go away because I can't take a young girl like you down to Canberra with me. And isn't that funny in the current environment now? Wow. That's the start of my career. That was the start. And so I thought what I'll do is I'll dye my hair blonde and I'll go into the police because I didn't. Why the blonde hair? I don't know. I thought people would take me more seriously than purple (laughs) hair. And I joined the police because I liked being active. I liked the idea of getting involved in a little bit of a fracas. So, and the constant challenging yourself, I actually liked the idea of that. But I also think back now, I have a look at my conditioning and I wanted to go into a family environment where I could be pushed along. Right. Whereas if I had to have gone down to Canberra, I would have been living by myself without a foothold. And that was too scary for me. It was too big a jump for me to leave Brisbane and go to Canberra as a 19-year-old. So the safe option for me was to go into literally an establishment or a bureaucracy and get pushed along. And I only ever had a five-year plan to stay in the police. Mm. But it obviously lasted a lot longer than that. It really did. And that's (laughs) that task orientation thing where you think you just got to keep going. Mm-hmm. And so at some point in your police career, you found yourself focusing more on child abuse and sexual assault investigations. Yeah. Yeah. How did and that come about? When I was still in the academy, when we did our station duty, which was only a couple of months into our training, I'd get phone calls. I'd go home from my shift, I'd get phone calls and I'd say, come back in again, you've got to take a sexual assault statement because there was, I think there was two reasons. One, female men generally didn't take sexual assault statements, the male police. And two, I didn't have children and I was young. So they had, and probably rightfully so, because what I know about the brain now, it's perfect to send 20 to 30 year olds into the army or to the police because their brain processes things differently. But because I didn't have children, then I, I, I would say, well, I'll come back in because I would deal with SIDS deaths and, anything child-related or any sexual assault. And it wasn't necessarily because they thought I was a soft touch. I'm not. There's something unhinged about me. Like I'm, <laughs> I love people desperately, but yet because of the way I process things, I'm so task-orientated that I don't probably show very much compassion at all because I'm thinking 700 steps ahead on how to solve a problem. So I'm sure, actually, person. I'm sure that is not true at all. <laughs> I, knowing you, I think you're just being extraordinarily harsh on yourself right there and then. But continue. So but you, <laughs> because I was so task orientated, I would try and get it done as quickly as I could. Mm, so I was, mm. I would get pulled out of bed to do it. And later on, when I joined Task Force Argos, because I always loved the idea of being covert police, because there's a part of me that thinks I'm an excellent actress too, which isn't necessarily true. It's just every child thinks that they are. Um, Can you just come clarify for people who don't know what Task Force Argos is? So task that's our undercover online pedophile task force. So when I started out, MSN was a chat room that groomed a lot of children online and adults and sexual offenders who were adults or young people would groom younger people. It's the most common form or the first form of catfishing that we had and agree to meet up with these young children and with a view to groom and sexually assault them. So that's what Argos would step in to 
monitor social media as it was then and has now progressed now Mm. Um, because those chat rooms are different now Mm. different ways of grooming now but that's the environment I walked into so I would be the covert that would be online saying I was a 14 year old girl Mm. and oh my god Lou in two minutes they all the bosses would bring all the politicians in to show them what was going on within two minutes I would have 20 to 30 men asking me as a 14 year old what I look like with my clothes off and did I touch myself so that would be within two to three minutes of being online. It's just horrific isn't it it's absolutely horrific what is out there and this was how long ago was this? That was that would have been 19 or 2002 2003 so that Mm. was a long time ago Mm. and I don't think it's got better I think it's got worse there's just there's more ways to encrypt behaviors and there's a lot people have got smarter in ways that they're going to groom and meet up with people meet up with children too now there's actually from what I remember there's actually limits on how long officers can work with task force Argos is that still the case do you know because of burnout and because of the type of material that they're having to deal with that wasn't the case when I was there okay even have to do a psychometric test right so Wow. Things definitely have changed mm. from when I was there. In fact, when I went to see a PSO and say I wasn't acting normally and I have never acted normally since, she said to me that the best thing I could do would be to take time out and have a child. Wow. So okay. I think things have definitely changed. Mm. 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 Um, and I can't speak on behalf of what the process is now because you're not there anymore yeah so that was your first kind of that's quite full-on and as a young woman to be in that space and deal with that information and you said that it it really impacted you significantly and you haven't been the same since yeah it's we we I did go and see I got CVT I did go and see a counsellor about it I don't I'm not a massive fan of CBT. I don't think talking about something and reimagining what happened to you and creating or further reinforcing trauma pathways is the best way to achieve healing. So I don't think that really helped. But what I did notice is as I was sitting online, you would have people being traipsed in to show how prolific the grooming behaviours were online. So I would have people standing behind me watching me being sexually assaulted online. So if I have people now walk up behind me or behind my ear, I want to punch on. I feel physically ill. I feel like I'm going to vomit and I feel like I'm going to turn around and strangle the person. I can't have people behind me Mm. and I can't kiss. Not I can't kiss my partner. I haven't kissed since that day. You haven't been able to kiss your partner. You haven't been able to kiss your partner since. Not, not passionately. No. Wow. Think about the implications of that for a relationship. Do you know what I mean? Like, and there's no forcing a person into it and saying just get over it and do it. (laughs) Not many people know that, but and I don't even think when I have spoken to professionals about it, they're like, oh, everyone's different in relation to their sexuality, and I'm like, okay. But from what you're saying, it's a trauma response that you have, you're think, still having. Yeah, sure. I th- absolutely. There was definitely a line in the sand between my behaviours pre and post working in that environment. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I guess that kind of something that's coming up for me out of that is how trauma does show up in many different ways, but also yeah. which is something that when you go into 
your high schools and you do a lot of personal protection training with teenage girls and often they'll come and have a conversation with you afterwards about the traumas that they've experienced and, and how that's affecting them. Some of the stories you've shared with me have just been like, that's just, it's horrendous, but also good that they feel safe enough to have the conversation. Do you feel like you could share a little bit about that with our listeners? I've got two examples that I think are really good examples. So at the end of every session, I will always have young girls and women come up to me and share an experience with me. It's not a case of if, but definitely they will. So, but I'm thinking about two examples that really stick with me and they really highlight what we really are seeing trauma with as opposed to whatever Hollywood is feeding us that a sexual assault will look like. Mm -hmm. So these are the two examples that are most predominant. One of them is young girls coming up to me at the end of the class because I teach in a lot of private school institutions female only I've never been invited to a male private school and the girls will say that they have family friends who have teenage children of the same age and they've grown up with them Mm. and they're in circumstances where that teenage boy will pressure them into sexual acts and at the end of it say if you tell your parents there's going to be trouble don't tell your parents because you'll look like a dirty hoe slut. You fill in the blanks for whatever name calling or whatever coercion goes in. And what they say is I say, what makes you feel like you can't speak to your parents about this? And, and they will say, because I'm the dirty hoe, that's what I've been told. And two, their father or mother is a medical professional, a solicitor, a barrister, this is the father, this is the parents of the perpetrator. Perpetrator. They're, mm. um, they're in the law court system. They're quite high up or influential within business or the legal sector, the medical sector. They will make me look like an idiot and they will make my family suffer if I say anything. I can't say anything because I'm the dirty hoe in this situation. And I'm trying to dumb down the language that's actually used when these girls are explaining what they're called. Yeah. Um, and I probably shouldn't. Why am I dumbing it down? The, the truth is, is that they're being called sluts and, and hoes and bitches um, after they've just been coerced into a sexual act. I think the messaging that I was getting consistently at the end of these classes is, one, they were being coerced, mm. and, two, they said the ramifications with their family and their family friends were too great for them to bear. They would mm. prefer to be assaulted them to be vocal to say stop Mm. so that's the first one that really boils inside me it's the one that really triggers me so they're they're the victim and then they also have to be the protector of the perpetrator that's the position they're put into exactly and they also have to be thinking about protecting adults Mm. in these situations I just recently had a friend, her daughter at school was visited by Red Frogs, a great organisation, fantastic organisation. I have very specific views about whether schoolies should go ahead when we always consistently every year see um, youths killed because they fall off towers and the sexual assault rates pandemic level. Like if anyone looked at the statistics or could be bothered to sit down and have a look at schoolies statistics, there would be no rationale as to why it goes ahead apart from the commercial implications of why schoolies goes ahead. Right. If we looked at it at a social and health level, it wouldn't go ahead. Mm. If you have a look at it at a commercial level, it's always going to go ahead. So red frogs are there to support 
some they wouldn't be there unless this wasn't happening. There were sexual assaults and, and kids overdosing and putting themselves in situations where they die because they're drunk and intoxicated. And that's the truth. And that continues to happen every year. So Red Frogs support the kids to say, we'll look after you if you're having a bad trip or you're very drunk and no one's there to look after you when you're vulnerable. And great job wonderful volunteers that it's heavy going when I was in PSRT I used to be walking along the surface paradise beach and there every two to three meters there was sexual activity going on in those bushes and we couldn't know from one second to the next whether there was consent involved and certainly if there's alcohol and drugs involved consent can't even be an issue you cannot consent Mm. sexual activity when you're under the influence of drugs and alcohol and capacity impaired so you would just see it as you walked up and so that's why red frogs are there red frogs go to schools and give education on what to do if you are feeling impaired by drugs or alcohol or feeling vulnerable Mm. and one of the workers said while he was explaining that he was assisting with a sexual assault said this young boy had his whole life ahead of him when he assaulted that girl. Mm. So I get it. I totally get it. We, when you're public speaking, it's it, it's so hard to put a filter on and think about every it, word because you're yes. under the spotlight. Mm. But um, I think this is societal messaging. I'm just as bad as everybody else. I am not perfect. I am the worst. But societal conditioning is we think about the boy and the fact that he, he's going to get a criminal history for sexually assaulting someone yes when, I mean, I mean the victim the girl and the trauma that she goes through mm. and she will continue to carry with her for the rest of her life yeah and all the the stigma that's involved that absolutely is, everything that's involved it's re- it is really interesting, isn't it, how we do have this conditioned default response in society that to protect men and young men, even when they do these horrific acts, because rape and sexual assault and harassment are traumatic for victims to be on the receiving end of, and it stays with you. It stays with you for life, and yet... Society so often prioritises making sure that the perpetrator can get on with their life as easily as possible and and isn't as affected. You like it's it's just quite it's such a disconnect, really. It's such a disconnect. I can I uh, bring an example or or encapsulate everything that you just Mm. said for me in a really graphic response I got from a male police officer once. Mm, mm, Please said to me. When you think about a man having sex with a woman, he's not dirty. But a woman accepting a bodily part of a man into them, that's dirty. I, I'm just having a bit of trouble finding um, a response for that. That's Aaron. dirty. And, that, and they, bring, they have that in them. They internalise their filth. But a man can take out his penis and wash it. This is literally what this officer said to you. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why he he was trying to say it's not as bad as you think it is. <laughs> I can't. As, as you I, think it is. Um, 
See, when you hear these, these kinds of stories, which when you talk to people who work in the space of sexual violence and talk to victims and understand what we're really facing in society, what the reality is, that story, I don't find it surprising. I do find it appallingly shocking and horrifying, but it's not surprising. No, it's not and surprising. It's, and there's, I'm pretty sure there'd be some guys out there going, oh, I have thought like that. And it doesn't make them bad people. It makes them, the minute they were born, they breathed in the air of conditioning and the conditioning to believe that some people in society are lesser or better than them. And that's the truth. It's just They're breathing in that same air and it's a conditioning. Hi, Lucretia here. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. I always learn so much from my guests and I hope you do too. After all, the whole reason for this podcast is to empower everyday people like you and me with the information and tools we need to stop sexual violence in our communities. I honestly believe we all have a role to play and we can create real change through our own grassroots actions. If you'd like to support this podcast and help fund its production and promotion so we can reach even more people, you can become a patron. Just click the button on the website or in the Podbean app and put in your details. You can give as much or as little as you like and I would be so grateful for your support. Now, let's get back to today's guest. And as I say to when, when I'm talking to my teenage girls and I'm mm. trying to teach them better ways of understanding their body and taking control of their body because they've been conditioned, and I say to them, when do you think it was acceptable for women to be involved in contact sports that didn't involve lingerie and jelly? And they would say, our girls would say, 30 years ago. And my response is always, 30 years ago, I went to my school principal with my little friends in primary school and we said, can we play soccer? And he said, if I hear any more of this nonsense, you girls are going to get a detention and there's a dance competition coming up. So why don't you go and practice for that? That was 30 years ago. No, was it? It's more than 30 years. It was 30 something years ago but <laughs> our young girls don't have a concept of how close it is in history you ask any female sporting coach and there's very few of them and that's another thing that I'm going to go on about did you have a look at the Olympics and see the complete lack of female sporting coaches with the exception of gymnastics but even then there's a lot of male coaches mm. in gymnastics mm. and now yeah. they're the centre of a lot of allegations too very few female coaches and that's what I face every day is that they I get it I'm not everyone's cup of tea and you may not want to be trained with me but there is definitely a perception that I'm a lesser person or a lesser coach based on what you see mm -hmm. and what I say to the girls is it's only been in the last five years that we're seeing women's cricket AFL rugby take off in an environment where they're not having to dress in lingerie to be able to get airtime yeah to even get sponsorship, you know, to get Correct. companies to pay for them to train Correct. or uniforms or whatever, you know, and at a professional level. 
Mm. You're right. So that's five years. So if we Mm. have a look at the anthropology of time and conditioning, 3,000 years women were only accepted into recreational or sporting venues that were usually individualised and they were dancing, they were cooking, they were nurturing. So they were put on show for everybody else's entertainment. They weren't very often the gladiators in the ring. So for 3,000 years women have been disconnected on how they can use their bodies. Mm. keep themselves safe and that is a really long time and whenever I do exercises in self-defense I always say young girls when I give them knife defense uh, flow drills they'll stand there and just look at each other or they'll talk or they'll giggle the girls Mm. who are involved in contact sports they're just the same as the male gender conditioning they get in and do do is doing Talking mm. is talking, but the doing creates the neural pathways for remembrance so that they will do it when they need to do it. Put a group of boys together, do the same flow drill, different outcomes to a group of girls doing the same flow drill. That is mm. 3,000 years of conditioning. And there is no judgment. I don't judge the girls for that. I judge the 3,000 years of conditioning mm. that mm. is behind the reason why they're not comfortable using their bodies mm. or and getting that- in contact with other people. Yeah, and that also connects into the the freeze, flight, fight, yes. fawn responses that we see. I know that even myself, I'm actually I'm embarrassed to talk about it, but it it's the real experience. And I work in this space. A few weeks ago, I was standing on the footpath, and a group of men walked past me. It was early evening, and one of the men is they're young men from my building, lives in my building, knows who I am. I'm on the edge of the footpath, early evening, not many people around, and I'm on the edge thinking, oh, they just walk behind me. It's a couple of metres across the footpath width. And as they walk past, I feel like this brush across my backside. Oh, man. And, and I froze. I froze in shock because I was like, did that just happen? Like, did I, was that an accident? Did I just imagine that? Like, what? Because that's an that's a pretty common response from the conversations I have of self-doubt the condition of self but and also incredulous that that actually just happened and then by the time I collected my wits and turned to see where they were they were about 10 meters down the road had not even broken stride it was so little an event for them to do that it was so low on this scale of importance to do that to a woman and then I stood there and I was like do I say something do I not say something and I thought well hang on there's four of them they're about twice my size there's not many people around and I'm by myself and so I didn't say anything and you know what it took me a couple of days later I was on the bus and then I started feeling really emotional and thinking I just knew it was deliberate and then I was beating myself up about the fact that I hadn't done anything. Yeah. I hadn't done anything. But I you also know. the wrongdoer. Exactly. You like you were the wrongdoer. Exactly. But that's that freeze response. Like it's, it's just extraordinary how even with however much knowledge we might have in our minds, we still have this conditioned body response to actions that happen to us, that are inflicted on us. And then we beat ourselves up about it afterwards when we actually haven't done anything wrong, right? And it's worse trauma. The the negative self-talk that you are giving yourself is far worse trauma. Yes. Far worse trauma. Yes. And the implications for them, for the male perpetrator. I wish you had a text me. I would have set you right. (laughs) And 
know, and I, what came up for me though, Erin, I was thinking about how you and I had had a conversation at one point around when you do the training with the teenage girls in particular, you were saying in the schools, you get them to verbalise what's happening to them as a way to break up and change that those neural pathways. So they actually verbalise because in doing so, that kind of shocks them out of that um, freeze response. And I was yeah. just like, I... I think I just need to come and do some training with you around that. Habit sentences, Lou, but, mm. I, you know, I can say this all day long, but I'll still have circumstances like that. Mm. And do you know what I will think in my head? I will think I'm too old for them to have any sort of attraction. Yes. So it yes. could not have happened, you know. Mm-hmm. I was so, incredulous. These guys are in their 20s. I'm at the other end of 40. And I was just like, did that actually happen? And why would you do that? Why? Knows that women in their forties are amazing. <laughs> so, isn't that? Oh, a yes, of course, it what is. I know we're very hard on ourselves, but it's right? It's so much easier for you to have that conditioning mm, than it, it is. is. It is. Yes, and so what you're talking about is habit sentences, and the habit sentences mm. are. So, if we have a look at neural pathways, if we verbalise a habit sentence as it's happening, you're touching my bra, you're touching my hair, you're touching my underwear. If we verbalise it, it actually creates almost like a mirror effect. It stops the trauma cascade through the neural pathways. The magic of, you know, the first, what was the first thing ever in creation? Sound. Sound Mm. was the first thing and it was good. That's our mirror. And it shows when we use our voice, it shows that we stop what you're doing right now, which is the conditioning for the pain brain, for you to blame yourself for everything that's happened to you Mm. and that habit sentence. So if someone, we know it's safer to confront someone if you're feeling like you're being followed because, one, if I keep my back to them, I'm still a great target. I can't see what's happening and I can't defend myself against something I can't see happening. But if I turn around and confront someone and say, are you following me? If they're not intending any ill action at all, what would their response be, Lou? And oh, they'd be like, no way. Like, I'm like, no, oh my God, not. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. So mm. you get instant feedback, but mm. you also instantly shut down any trauma that you had, that flight or fright in your body. You stop the lizard brain reaction that you were talking about straight away. Mm. And if they're a nice person, you may end up being great friends. <laughs> but if they're yeah. not a nice person, you're instantly going to get feedback and you have prioritized your safety over your manners. And our manners are, Yes. As small as possible and as quiet as possible. Mm-hmm. The good girl. Be the good girl, the people pleaser. Don't be insane. Don't be a psychopath. Don't upset anyone. Mm-hmm. For the love of God, don't upset anyone. Exactly. And see how far that's got us. <laughs> yeah, not, it hasn't got us. <laughs> it's not working. I think that my feeling is that that's not working for any of us, but there is a lot of work to be done to unpick that condition patterning. And even for someone, like it still happens to you, it still happens to me, there's a lot of work to be done. Erin had so many fascinating insights to share that I've needed to spread our conversation over two episodes of this podcast. So if you've enjoyed our conversation so far, I'd encourage you to head over to episode two. In that conversation, we'll be talking in a little bit more detail about Erin's work in high schools and specifically some of the conversations that she has with teenage girls about sexual assault. 
Thanks so much for your company today. If you feel more informed or empowered after listening to this podcast, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or family member. Medusa's Mic is brought to you by the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, an enterprise to bring people together to discuss and facilitate sexual violence prevention and response initiatives. The music for today's podcast is brought to you by Dima Tishko from Tuntank. The opinions and perspectives offered on Medusa's Mic are solely those of the interviewer and the interviewees. They are our expressed personal opinions and views. They are not intended or meant to replace any treatment or advice you may be receiving from a licensed professional. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional, psychological, medical or legal help, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. This episode is copyrighted and should not be reproduced without express permission from SSV Colab and Lucretia Ackfield.